Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Armed Med Ed podcast. This will be a way for us to connect you with some new ideas in between our sessions. We know that it can be hard to enter into the world of medical education research. And so we want to make sure that you don't feel so lonely in your pursuits. We'll be bringing you a community of scholars who want to share their wisdom with you in this part of our community of practice. So listen up. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening to this first podcast from the Armed MedEd series. I'm here with Dr. Jamie Jordan and Dr. Sam Clark, and they're here with me as co-hosts of this conversational MedEd podcast that we're not really sure what it's going to be like, but we're giving it a shot. And it's meant to support both the mentors and the mentees and all our mentor families um, to be successful along the hidden curriculum that we're going to actually unpack and make explicit. So thank you to Jamie and Sam for being part of this. Can you guys say hi? Hello, everyone. Hi, everyone. All right. So we're going to talk today about approaches to writing manuscripts. And I know that both of you, um, having seen your work and read about it and fangirled you at times, I know that uh, both of you have written enough that you have some lessons learned and have learned from the School of Hard Knocks what to do and what not to do. So can, can you both uh, just take a, take a little bit of time and just tell me kind of the steps that you take when you're writing a manuscript? Like you've, you've done your study, you've got your protocol, you've got your IRB all figured out, you've collected all your data, and now you're gonna sit down and you're gonna write the actual manuscript. What do you do? All right, so I guess I'm going to take a stab at this first since Sam is being silent. Um, what I do, I guess, hopefully at that point, I have already started the manuscript with the point where I submitted my IRB. So I hope I have some at least preliminary work done in the introduction already. But wherever I'm at, I generally then template out an outline. Um, and I have a sort of standard format that I typically follow. And then what I do is I fill that in with sort of key points, what I did, and then that seems to make the whole process less overwhelming. And then I really just go chunk by chunk and start writing. I think, Teresa, you've often said just your, your first and worst draft of whatever comes to my head, um, and then try to keep refining it from there. But that's how I generally get started. Very cool. Sam, any adaptations to some of that? Um, no, I think I, I follow a similar process. I think things that I try to remind myself about, you know, I, I think beginning the process is kind of the hardest step sometimes. And, and we, we feel like we need to wait for some sort of inspiration or like the perfect amount of time, the kind of perfect opportunity to start writing. Um, and I try to really <laughs> encourage myself to move past that. Don't wait for the muse uh, to speak to you, but instead um, dive right in and don't be afraid of a bad first draft. Um, I think, you know, also remembering that this is pretty formulaic writing. Uh, and so uh, if you have, you know, an, an outline that you've created, um, it will look in a lot of ways just structurally similar to other manuscripts you may have written in the past. Um, and just follow that game plan and you'll have something that you can work from. Yeah, I love that, right? That leading into the fact that words on page, most of us are better, like, 
editors than we are writers. And so the blinking cursor is everyone's worst enemy, right? And so if you can start with a template, if you can start with your IRB document, your grant proposal, right? Like there are documents that already exist that have the bulk of what you had to write. Um, and my only other pro tip would be, uh, would be to start with your methods because that's gonna be in your IRB and you'll copy and paste it over. And then what you can do is you can change the tense. And then you're already like one third of your paper in, which is amazing, right? And that takes the pressure off because like, wow, I'm so accomplished. And really what it was is, is that you just paid attention in grade three or I don't know, third grade, I guess you guys call it in the US and, and remember how to change tenses, but hey, it's a start and it gets your momentum going and your confidence building. Totally agree. All right, so when you're, um, I think the other part that people often think about is how do we then integrate in, you know, journal choice? Like, how do we actually think about that and approach that? Because I think one of the challenges sometimes, honestly, is that um, people don't even know where they're going to send the article. And to me, I think that that can set people up to have a hard time writing the introduction and the discussion, because like even the methods and the results, they might be fairly the same regardless of what journal. I think to me, intro and discussion is 90% spin. And so that means you need to know who you're spinning it for, right? Is it Fox News? Is it CNN? Just kidding. But like, you know what I mean? Like who are you spinning this uh, content for? Yeah, totally agree. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you kind of need to be a reader first. And so having some familiarity as we've talked about with, with the journals, what sort of things um, they tend to publish is key. Um, if you've been a reviewer for a particular journal, that gives you kind of an inside look, perhaps, at, at the sort of things that, that um, are more likely to get accepted. Uh, but, you know, if you're really, you know, if it's a journal that you've never, you don't have a lot of familiarity with, you haven't submitted to before or whatever, um, I think at a minimum, just looking for papers that are similar to yours and seeing like, you know, is this, does this seem aligned um, with things that this journal has been interested in, in the past is what I would do. Yeah, and I think I would just to kind of add on to that, I, I think I would look for that and know my intended journal before I actually start writing that first draft. And I usually have sort of my plan of attack, like my first, second and third places that I'm going to submit. Um, and so I target my initial draft towards that, that first journal that I'm planning for. But then I still kind of have a, an idea in the back of my head of how I'm going to pivot if it gets rejected from that first place. Agreed. I would say that in the post-pandemic era of publishing, both as a journal editor and as an as an author, I have experienced rejection at an astronomical rate. Uh, so I would say that being psychologically prepared and picking, you know, three or four or five journals deep is actually a really good resilience move. Um, and, and I would say that if you, you know, there's all the dives that people kind of have taught me. If you get accepted on the first run then you might not have aimed high enough right and so I do think that uh, you know letting that simmer for you a little bit is that you know you might want to send it to an aspirational journal worst comes to worst they tell you right off the bat and they're usually you know pretty quick like a week or two like you're not going to sit on it for very long um, after that if if they did like it enough to send it for review, even if, even if they say no after that, increasingly a lot of meta journals are actually taking second take or like uh, um, 
uh, I guess, recycled reviews and stuff like that. So several journals in our field actually have that. So perspective on medical education, advances in health sciences education. I believe teaching and learning medicine does it, but they don't always say. I know uh, a journal of continuing education, the health professions does it. And our Canadian medical education journal now finally does it because I've been egging them on for a while. And so the idea would be you submit after a high-ranking journal rejects you, you revise your paper as if those were revise and resubmit requests and you submit to the new journal. And so to me, that is a really nice service to the whole community because it means that, you know, we're not burning more reviewers on an, an article that's already been reviewed at a fairly good level. And so for, for me, the worst comes to worst is that you improve your article. And I have had, you know, like I've had one story of a paper for a journal that will not be named, took us through four rounds of review and uh, ended up rejecting us. And uh, we took that paper, uh, we revised it one more time and we sent it to the top journal in that field and it was accepted minor revisions after that. And so sometimes you get tortured at one journal and then it, it turns into gold at another journal. So I, I do think that that's worthwhile for us to bear in mind when you're going through that whole process. So it's a bit of the resilience around journal kind of like navigation, but also it's just psychologically, you're thinking about how you're going to pivot your paper, right? And so it's like if you're going to be a presidential candidate going to you know, Delaware and then Texas and then Florida, you might actually have different spins on the way that you say your same message. Similarly here, if you're gonna to go to academic medicine, then perspectives, then AEM education and training, you may have to customize your message just a little bit to like sell different aspects, right? To, and so knowing the journal, knowing what they're like most interested in and, and understanding who their main readership that they think that they're talking to is, is really important. So like Sam, you, like you said, start with reading, read the kind of article that you want to write. It's kind of like dress for the job that you want. It's like, read the article you want to write. Uh, that's like a really nice way to think about it, I think as well. All right, now, um, have you guys heard of the journal abstract name estimator before, Jane? So this is a cool nifty tool that I came across recently. If you just actually type journal abstract name estimator in Google, um, it'll take you to a website that basically you plop in keywords or like your actual abstract from a conference, for instance, and it'll match it with a likely journal. Now it's not perfect, but it like helps you like heat seek the kind of words that, uh, that the different journals might like. Um, and so if you don't even have a, it's, it's kind of like um, the magic eight ball of journals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I actually find that that's kind of cute about it. Um, but like, so, so you've worked hard for instance, you've submitted to, uh, you know, AEM, uh, SAEM, sorry, um, or uh, CORD or something like that. And you now you have an abstract. Um, uh, you can spin it through that so that you can be like, oh, who's going to, Gonna like this paper and then like you'll be able to see where it matches most um, and you can also look for other related works so for instance if you put in an abstract of a paper you've already written you can actually look and see overlap with another person's work so it can look at that too and then it can uh yeah it's kind of like you can find other scholars who might be good reviewers of your work because they're gonna be swimming in the same circles and know the same stuff right um, and so this is another tool that you can use for some of those other parts. That's brilliant. Mm -hmm. uh, there's an, there's an, yeah, sounds like a somewhere in there, but I, yeah. 
I don't know what it is. Say that again. Sorry. There's an internet dating just... somewhere in there. Yeah. <laughs> internet dating, exactly. Oh, Jamie, what were you gonna say? I was just gonna say it sounds like a tool I should use more often. Yeah, it's not like the be all and all, but it's a good place to start, especially if you're coaching junior people, if you have a mentee who is struggling with a paper, if you've done your top three journals and you're like, now what, right? This might help you decide between your fourth and fifth journal and see uh, which one ends up being, you know, like more alike, right? And so I don't think they're doing any fancy algorithms in the background, but a little bit of machine learning light kind of thing, um, looking at keywords and other things like that. So you can actually just put in random words and it still finds you a journal that will take those random words. So uh, it, it's based on kind of like word frequency, probably nothing too extravagant. All right. So now you've got all your data, you've written your methods, you've written your results and you're like, okay, I think I want to target for this journal. Let's say it's a education and training because both of you are involved with that journal in some way. So let's say that's the target at one, right? And so as Sam, you, you hear, you know, what Sam says and you're like, okay, I gotta go read articles in the format. Like let's say you're, you've got an educational innovation. And so you're like, okay, I'm going to read the last five innovation reports that they've published. All right. And so my advice to you at this stage is probably just to read and enjoy, and, but then take a second run to read and dissect. And so what I mean by dissect is, you know, there's the headings that are unique and special in an innovation report. I didn't pick it out of nowhere because, you know, MRAD format is usually the way you do most uh, research papers, but for these special types of papers, sometimes you need to actually understand what do they mean by need for innovation? Like how do other people write that? Because you're like, I've never written an innovation report before. How am I going to even write that? And so I think that's a really important step is to understand the, the rhetorical structure of the paper you're trying to um, write. Again, read the paper you want to write. And then you can start emulating after you've read a couple of them. Any thoughts to add to that? Yeah, totally agree. I mean, you know, we, we're all decision editors for that particular journal. And I think it's a pretty common experience that you'll get a submission that would actually work really well, say as an innovations report, but instead is presented as a, you know, perhaps not so strong research study, something like that. Um, and so, yeah, it's kind of thinking about what the best fit within the journal's different offerings would be um, is, is a really key step. I think the other thing that I do is after I've actually read a couple examples is, is actually just have, I'm lucky enough that I, I have dual screen. So I have the author instructions up on one screen as I'm sort of writing or refining the manuscript that I'm gonna be submitting. And that seems to kind of keep me um, on check, I guess. Yeah, and I would say that there are certain kinds of articles that may also require you to, um, that uh, have certain standards. So I don't know if uh, the two of you have heard of the Equator Network, uh, but it's an open access repository of all the reporting guidelines for any kind of science, including medical education, actually. So it's really cool. So, you know, like at some journals, not all journals, but some journals, they're like, you have to use the strobe guidelines or you have to use SRQR or you have to use COREC. And so the idea would be that you can go to Equator Network. Um, and actually, if you just Google Equator Network guidelines, it'll come up and then you can actually go through that repository and find the relevant 
a guideline. This is actually also great as an editor and it's also great as a reviewer because you're like, oh my gosh, there's a train wreck article that doesn't make any sense. Um, and hopefully that's not your own, but it just helps you make sure you hit all the marks of what makes for a great systematic review or qualitative study. And, and um, you know, just like, I think, who said it to me? I think Lorelai Lingard says this quite a bit and when she's talking about writing, like you can break the rules, but you have to know the rules to know when to break them um, and to, to know, like you can't break them all, right? And so the idea would be a reporting guideline is a suggestion, is a guideline, right? Just like all our clinical guidelines. <laughs> but at the same time, um, they can help you scaffold your paper. So for instance, if you've never written a qualitative paper before for a medical education journal, go and find O'Brien's SRQR guidelines. Because if you just follow the table and actually take our heading and then write that section and take the next heading and write that section, it's a reporting guideline for a reason, because it actually helps guide you on what you should report to what editors and reviewers are expecting. On the flip side, I actually find reporting guidelines even useful when you're getting started. So if you have never done a qualitative study before, but you're starting off writing your first, um, you know, maybe you're doing a thesis or maybe you're doing your first, you know, resident or fellow research project on your own and you want to look good for your supervisor or something. Well, you know what, like go and hit up the SRQR and use it to scaffold your study protocol because then it's actually all the headings that you should consider that you should report ultimately. Well, if you don't do that step, you can't report it. So it's a good scaffold that way too. And if you're a mentor and mentoring someone on a new kind of paper or a new kind of approach that you know nothing about, these guidelines are your best friend. You look like, like a rock star mentor when you're like, you're missing these things. And then they're like, how did you know? I'm like, have you heard of the stroke guidelines? Cause I just Googled them. Uh, <laughs> and then you can share and then, and then you can know you can get better. And, and I do find that those are very helpful um, to be able to get people excited about um, how to have like this like the cookbook recipe right like you're not going to make a master chef with reporting guidelines but you're gonna you're gonna have a pretty good home cook right so that's pretty good yeah that's well said mm -hmm. all right so uh yeah any any tips then when you're you know you know, you get your first worst draft done. Let's fast flash forward. You've taken your IRB, you've turned it into your methods, you've got your results, you've added the tables and like put some stuff down on page. You've figured out what journal you're heading for. So you've written an introduction and a discussion that are for that audience and some limitations just to, you know, apologize for your um, quote unquote sins, uh, <laughs> things that you couldn't, uh, uh, couldn't accomplish. Um, what do you do now? What, what, what do you do at that point, uh, Jamie? Like, uh, what, what's your next step after that? I guess my next step, assuming that I have co-authors that I often do it, I think that that point, that's when I start gathering some um, group support and, and really take advantage of the expertise within my author group to sort of refine the manuscript. I send it out to the whole group and I have everyone sort of um, be very critical um, and review and edit um, for, for me to revise afterwards. Mm -hmm. What about you, Sam? Yeah, similar. I, I think, uh, you know, I, I try to kind of carry it as far as I can in terms of, you know, shaping it and feeling like, you know, I have something that at least to me has kind of a logical flow and, you know, checks all the, the boxes in terms of, you know, structure and stuff like that. Um, 
but then yeah you just have to see if it actually holds water uh and and so it's probably after the second or third draft that i send it out to co-authors just to kind of you know ask for that more critical eye uh i'll review to the the studio audience that's listening i guess uh that i actually involve my co-authors a lot earlier so um uh, i actually do this author grid kind of like thing when I do my very first kick at all of this, what I do is I actually involve everyone in filling out the author grid together to get all their details and all that stuff. Jamie's been on a paper with me, so she's seen the grid. Um, it's, it's part of the passive negotiation of where do you want to put your name and you know I'll put my name as first or last and and then people are awkwardly like adding lines in between so that someone is above them like you can kind of figure out what people want to get into um some groups are more explicit they actually have like really awkward conversation at the beginning I call them the academic prenup before you get into bed with everyone you declare the terms of your relationship within that team and I'm like that's actually I think probably the best format but until you're really Good at that conversation it can come off a little bit awkward um and then uh the the other thing that i do is i actually float a an outline to everyone to get their assent and and to have them help me find citations i didn't know about crowdsource some of that stuff before i even put the rest of the the outline into sentences so that i think lowers the bar for people to get in there and add their intellectual content and thoughts and it's just an outline it's kind of like when you do like sticky notes on a wall right it's a lot easier to tear apart a qi project as a sticky note than it is when it's like a fully written manuscript and so i think that um, I try to be more inclusive, especially with junior people. They don't want to question me as a PI if I've written like this manifesto. So with the exception of things that are my intellectual work, because I was like, it's my thesis or dissertation or something like that, that would be circumstances where I'm like, no, no, no I got to do this. But other circumstances, I try to be more inclusive if I can at earlier stages so that people can... Um, help with parts. And so for me, one of the parts that I often carve off for a more junior person is take the methods and take the IRB and change the tense. And they're like, oh, I can do that. I'm like, yes, I believe you've gotten to medical school so you can do this, right? And they, they, they you know, imposter syndrome is real, right? Like Jamie can probably attest to, you know, she was mentioning this earlier about, you know, other parts of this it's just easy for people to feel daunted, especially if they're the most, most junior person in the team, right? And so giving them something that's very easily achievable can make them feel really included. And then hopefully that means that that paves the way to them being more um, involved later on in the editing. Yeah, and it's interesting that you you bring that up because I actually think that, that I find myself writing in sort of two different pathways. I either, you know, as the first author or the PI, I, I take it on myself to create an outline and write a, a, a decent first draft. Um, but other times I've also kind of done as, as you mentioned, where I'll create a draft outline, I'll float that through to the author group and get feedback and then refine the outline. Um, and then have folks sort of select pieces of the manuscript that they wanna you know, take a stab at writing the initial draft before I then sort of revise it into something cohesive and send out for further review to the group. Um, and I don't really honestly have a preference of one pathway or the other. I, I probably, depending on the group, end up going down the, the two different roads. Um, but it's interesting that you kind of mentioned that because I have found myself doing the, the same thing at different points. 
it totally depends on the project, right? There are some projects where you know you're going to have to take the lead. You're going to have to be the mama bear or the papa bear and take care of everyone because they're all very junior. It could be that you're the most junior person and you're like, well, maybe I should bear this weight because everyone else is really busy right now. They're all chiefs and chairs and it's COVID right now. And so I have the bandwidth. I'm going to go step forward, right? So I don't think it's a one size fits all kind of uh, algorithm here. I think it depends on the kind of lab that you want to set up and what, what project is being done and et cetera, et cetera. I would say though, I am increasingly leaning towards kind of like the liberating structures type of um, coordination of research when I'm the one in charge because I want to make science more approachable for junior people. And so that's just like my kind of kick at equity, diversity, and inclusion is to make it safe, psychologically safe to get involved. All right. So I think we almost have to come to the end of time. Um, and so, you know, like I, it sounds like everyone's harmonized final strategy is to make sure everyone gets to do their ICMG criteria final step of approving the manuscript before it's submitted. So you definitely need to make sure everyone gets, signs off on those last looks, right? Um, and then hopefully you're hitting up editorial manager, manuscript central, or some other kind of like system to be able to upload your paper. And hopefully you've adhered to the author guidelines like Jamie suggested earlier, because then you don't have to go 14 rounds with the uh, staff editor of the journal to format your paper quickly. Because for instance, Taylor, who does that for AEM education training has definitely slapped me on the wrist when I did not <laughs> exactly adhere to the guidelines as he wanted me to. And so I totally get that. All right, uh, final thoughts from each of one of you. I guess the only other thing that I'll say is to definitely block out time in your schedule for writing and make it a priority because otherwise it just becomes overwhelming. So um, schedule it, protect it, and do it frequently. Got it. And Sam? Yeah, totally agree with what Jamie said. And and I would say, you know, just don't be intimidated. Um, it's, you know, there's no there's no magic to this process. You have to just kind of get in and, and work at it. And um, as you kind of establish good habits, it does get easier and easier. Um, but yeah, I think if you if you follow some of the suggestions that have been put out there in this conversation, you'll find it's really not that painful a process. It can be really enjoyable. Yeah, and I mean, I think my final um, suggestion actually is that not everyone's a great writer. So if you're not a great writer, that's okay. You can get better and having that growth mindset is important and surrounding yourself with better writers and recruiting them through your team is a great secret to becoming a better writer. So go ahead, hunt the people that you've fangirled or fanboyed at conferences or read their papers and say, if, you know, like offer to say, I'd love to write shotgun on a uh, work that you're working on. And it doesn't even have to be necessarily a full research project. It could be a commentary. It could be a review paper. There's lots of opportunities to get in there and start getting your feet wet with scholarship. That's not always big R research. Um, and that's okay. You will yourself on and become a better writer doing that and then you can translate those skills into your manuscripts in the future all right well thank you so much for both of you for joining in uh, maybe you'll say goodbye to everyone and then we'll sign off all right goodbye everyone thank goodbye you. everyone thank you so much for tuning in to this edition of the armed meded podcast thank you to laney yaris wendy coates and all of the other instructors within the armed med ed circuit for making sure that we're always upping our game in medical education research. And thank you to Scott Holmes for supplying the music. We really enjoyed the tunes. <laughs>